0: This is Joy Boy, a Vespucci story written by Hallie Lieberman and narrated by me, Steve Buscemi. Dear Dr. Duncan, My wife wrote you concerning sex aids. I feel that your advice could be of much help to me. I have been having a problem in the bedroom. I feel I am just not pleasing her enough. We are both handicapped. She has cerebral palsy, and I have spina bifida. She's in a wheelchair, but she can feel more in her lower half than I can. I can walk, but I have some loss of feeling from the waist down. The fact that I am not even considered average in length has helped to make matters worse. I have thought about buying a strap-on penis. If you can help at all, please let me know. Yours truly, Doyle. Doyle slipped the letter into a Missouri mailbox on May 23, 1984, and anxiously waited to hear back. The letter found its way to a small brick two-story in Brooklyn, where a wheelchair-bound Caribbean-born engineer named Gosnell Duncan lived in an apartment with his wife, Angela. Nearly every day, Gosnell would ride the built-in elevator in his home to his basement workshop where he'd pour brightly colored liquid silicone rubber into molds shaped like penises and butt plugs. Few neighbors knew that behind the white painted steel bars on the windows of 5414 Kings Highway lived America's dildo king. He kept his business to himself. Dildos were technically illegal, after all, but to the handicapped community, Gosnell was a beacon one of the few people in the United States who took their sexual needs seriously, who treated them as fully human. On June 1st, almost as soon as he received Doyle's letter, Gosnell wrote back, I think I may be able to help you live with your bedroom problems, but I need more information, he wrote. With regard to the size of your penis, I can make up a hollow strap-on unit for you that will fit over your penis, but to do this, I need to have the length and thickness of your penis when it is hard. Take two pieces of twine and measure your penis from the tip to the base. Measure the distance around the shaft of the penis. Send the pieces of twine to me and I will make up a special unit for you. What size penis would you consider a good size? What does your wife think about this size? Doyle's letter was one of dozens Gosnell received over the course of his career as a dildo entrepreneur. This was not the career path that Gosnell planned for when he was growing up on the Caribbean island of Granada, where he was raised as a Seventh-day Adventist, a religion founded by a woman who believed masturbation caused everything from depression to rebelliousness. Good-looking, suave Gosnell was more interested in wooing women with his skilled calypso dancing than praying. Before he left the island in his mid-30s, Gosnell, now a successful ladies' man, had four kids with four different women. Yet Gosnell was restless on the tiny island, which, at 134 square miles, is the same size as Philadelphia. So, he enrolled in a medical engineering program in New Brunswick, Canada, as soon as he could get the cash together. On his way to Canada, he decided to stop in Brooklyn to visit his friend Angela from Trinidad. She was a decade older than Gosnell, with a bright smile, short, wavy black hair, and fondness for fitted dresses and kitten heels. Soon, his engineering program took a backseat to the beautiful woman in front of him. He abandoned the Canadian degree program and stayed in Brooklyn to pursue Angela. Angela and Gosnell began dating, and it got serious fast. Gosnell was finally settling down. He'd found a woman who matched his energy and joy for life. There was only one problem. He couldn't find a job in New York City, so he looked further afield and landed one at International Harvester in Chicago working as a temporary welder on the night shift from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. A long-distance relationship might have broken most couples, but Angela and Gosnell were not most couples. Angela traveled back and forth from New York City to visit him, and they fell more and more in love. For months, both his personal life and his work life were a success. Then... One cold day in Chicago in January of 1965, when he was just 37 years old, everything changed. Gosnell was perched underneath the steel tray of a two-ton truck when 100 pounds of steel landed on him. Another worker had forgotten to put in place the pins that secured the truck bed. In an instant, his life changed dramatically. His spine was severed. He couldn't walk. He was paralyzed from the waist down, and he couldn't get an erection. For any man, the inability to get hard is a psychological and physiological blow. Even more so for a man who is the epitome of stereotypical masculinity, machismo, charm, dance moves, multiple children with different women, a job in the auto industry. Most men would have been severely depressed after finding out they can no longer walk and no longer have penetrative sex. Sure, Gosnell was sad, but pictures of him in the hospital show him with a grin on his face, even as his legs dangle over the edge of the hospital bed. In fact, instead of his accident drawing him further away from Angela, the opposite happened. One day in the hospital, Gosnell donned a suit and tie and pinned a flower to his lapel and asked Angela, who was in white kitten heels, a white dress, and a matching hat, to marry him. She said yes. After six grueling months in the hospital, where Gosnell used a series of weights and pulleys to regain his strength, Gosnell and Angela moved back to Brooklyn. Life wasn't the same, though. He had to find a new profession, and in the meantime, she got a job as a lab technician to support them both. Angela loved him, but she was also frustrated with the day-to-day reality of living with a paraplegic. She wasn't trained to be a caretaker and was slow to understand his needs. One thing they were both aware of, their sex life was suffering. As Gosnell was learning to live his life from scratch, no one even mentioned the word sexuality. Most doctors did not view handicapped people as sexual beings. But Gosnell knew otherwise. While he lacked the ability to get an erection, he retained the urge for sex. If doctors weren't going to help him, he was going to figure it out himself. He poured over medical literature to find some solution, any solution, to his non-functioning penis. He found very little. Gosnell began brainstorming his own way to conquer impotence. And after months of thought, he hit upon a solution, creating a special dildo for the disabled. The only problem? He didn't know if anybody would buy it. In 1971, Gosnell attended a disability conference in Indianapolis and saw a type of session that he'd never seen before, a discussion about sex and disability. He eagerly listened to speakers detailing their struggles with sex and waited to hear their solutions. None were forthcoming. He saw his chance and took it. Surrounded by his target market, he asked if they would purchase a dildo. The answer was a resounding yes. Gosnell's instincts had been correct. Handicapped men were interested in dildos. They'd just been too shy to demand them. Gosnell returned to Brooklyn armed with confidence and began investigating the dildos that were already on the market. One by one, he inspected the penises. Most of them were poor quality, yet companies could make money selling them since there were few competitors. Dildos were an underground industry because in many jurisdictions they were illegal. They could also be dangerous. Sex toys were unregulated by the FDA and consumers were too embarrassed to complain of a dangerous dildo, so companies got away with selling crappy products. The dildos on the market were made of low-quality rubber or polyvinyl chloride, the same material used in vinyl records and pool floats. The rubber dildos not only had a strong rubber tire smell, but they were also prone to melting at inconvenient moments while the PVC dildos usually had a plasticky smell that came from the chemicals used to make the plastic softer. Both the rubber and PVC dildos were porous, so they couldn't be cleaned well, nor would they retain heat. These dirty, smelly, cold dildos were the opposite of what most women would want in their vaginas. Gosnell envisioned a dildo to use with his wife that was better than the unappealing offerings available something that at least wouldn't melt when you washed it with hot water. He didn't have much money. He didn't have a business plan. But what he did have was passion. This was not the marriage that Angela had signed up for. But she loved Gosnell so much that she was willing to stay by his side and help him with his dildo business. Angela couldn't help but be skeptical, however. Her husband was always starting new ventures. Since they'd been married, he'd begun a handicapped advice service, a natural health business, and side jobs lecturing at colleges. The couple relied mostly on her income, although he received some compensation from International Harvester. But Gosnell wanted to bring in money. In his eyes, that's what men did. They were breadwinners. Angela must have known, deep down, that this newest business was a love letter to her. Gosnell's first step was to seek out safer and more pleasurable materials for dildos. And inspiration came quickly. His mind was drawn to a material he used while working as an auto mechanic, silicone rubber. He remembered that it was odorless, silky and pliable, and didn't melt even when exposed to the intense heat of an engine. This heat resistance meant it could be sterilized in boiling water and sanitized between partners. The only problem was that the silicone used in automobile parts was not exactly safe for the body. He couldn't just buy off-the-shelf silicone, mold it into a dick, and call it a day. He had to develop a new material. Though he had aspired to be an engineer, he had no background in material development. So he reached out to a company that did, General Electric. GE was the leader in silicone development at the time, selling the material for products like adhesives and footwear. Gosnell wrote the corporation a letter explaining that he needed a rubber-based material that is non-irritating to the human body. He left out one key detail, what he was using the material for. For all GE knew, he was creating dishwashing gloves. He was cautious for good reason. G.E. may not have written back if he had told the truth, that he wanted advice on how to make the safest and most effective artificial penis in the world. Gosnell's letter worked. G.E. put him in touch with one of their chemists. They corresponded for nine months, writing back and forth, tweaking various formulas to get the perfect silicone, smooth, flesh-like, and safe for insertion into the human body. Gosnell decided he also needed to make another change to the dildos so they would look even more like his penis and the millions of penises out there that were not Caucasian. At the time, a flesh-colored dildo meant one thing and one thing only, Caucasian flesh. He checked for off-the-shelf colors to add to the silicone to darken it, but none were close enough to his skin tone to satisfy him. Again, he turned to the GE chemist and asked him if he could help. Together, they created darker skin tone colors. The chemist sent him brown and black organic pigments, and Gosnell blended them with silicone oil in the basement of his Brooklyn apartment. He'd purchased yellow industrial buckets full of silicone and fitted them with water spigots for easy access. Finally, Gosnell came up with three of his own colors, which he called mulatto, negroid, and black. He also made Caucasian because, you know, diversity. Now that Gosnell had the perfect material and color, he was one step closer to his dream, having penetrative sex with his wife again and helping out the thousands of men who were in a similar situation. He just needed a model for his dildo and he didn't have to look far to find it. His model dangled from his own body albeit it could no longer extend to the size he wanted it to. His penis became the design for the first mold. He sketched out the design, sculpted the model out of clay, created a corresponding mold, and poured silicone into it. After letting it harden and waiting hours for it to cure, he released the facsimile of his dick from the mold, and there he saw it, a model of his erect penis the first time he'd viewed his erection since the accident happened over five years ago. Not only did he have a version of his dick back, but he could also make as many copies of it as he wanted. He was building back his manhood, one dick at a time. Yet, Gosnell suspected that his penis wasn't the only penis women wanted to buy. He had studied human sexuality and read deeply in the research— from Masters and Johnson to Alfred Kinsey. He knew that human sexual desire took many shapes, so it followed that people wanted a variety of penises. He reached out to the experts at the Kinsey Institute. Just what size dildo would a woman or a gay man want, he asked. The Kinsey Institute recommended sizes from average to jumbo. Gosnell went with their suggestion and also decided to add scents, like licorice to a few of his dildos once he had the dildos ready to go in a variety of skin tones scents and sizes he needed to find a place to advertise them which was no easy feat dildos were considered obscene in most states and most publications wouldn't accept ads for them gosnell could get arrested for selling them but there was a way around the laws selling a dildo for female masturbation was illegal but selling it for heterosexual sex was not. Why? A dildo-wielding masturbating woman is dangerous because she is disrupting gender roles by sexually satisfying herself with no man in sight. But if a man straps a dildo onto his crotch to have sex with his wife, he is conforming to sexual norms and gender norms because he is providing sexual pleasure to a woman with his penis. If you sold your dildo as a strap-on and marketed it to impotent men, you could avoid getting in legal trouble. And, since curing impotence was the point of Gosnell's early dildos, selling his products this way made sense. He also made sure to market his dildos in a clinical way. His early dildos weren't even called dildos. They were called sex-aids. Gosnell took out ads for his company, Scorpio Products, in handicapped publications, and the orders started rolling in. One of those orders was from Doyle, the man with spina bifida. Doyle was concerned about the cost of the dildo. Gosnell did what he could to keep prices fair, but silicone was pricey, and he was crafting each one by hand. If I don't have the money on hand at the time, Doyle wrote, I can pay it out every month. I really want this. I would do anything to make it happen. Gosnell agreed to make Doyle his dildo. But he needed some specifications first. He asked Doyle to measure his penis and answer questions about his sex life. Doyle gamely responded to the intensely personal questions Gosnell had written. Length of penis when erect, Gosnell asked. Four and a quarter inches, Doyle wrote. Measurement around penis when erect, one and a half inches. What size penis would you consider to be a good size? Eight and a half. What size device would you want me to make up for you? Seven and a half long, one and a quarter to one and a half wide. What does your wife think of this size? She says my size is fine, but I know she enjoys eight and a half and has no problem taking it. She would be more happy with one that is at least seven and a half. How often do you and your wife have intercourse in a week? About three oral one or two days, anal three or four times a week. I hope I have given you all the answers you need, Doyle wrote. And then he added a few questions of his own. Would it be possible to wear this unit at all times or only during sex? I look like a girl from the waist down in jeans. Most guys I see at least have a small bulge. I have none. Then Doyle added an additional request. The unit you make must look and feel as close to the real thing as possible. After bearing his soul and dick measurements, Doyle seemed to realize he was writing to a complete stranger. Could you tell me about yourself? I feel a little strange telling these things to someone I hardly know, Doyle wrote, adding, I hope you don't mind me using the words come and rod. I feel more at ease using more common street names than the medical ones. As Gosnell helped Doyle with his marriage, his own was on shaky ground. He spent all day doling out advice in letters to his customers explaining how they could use his dildos to help their own sex lives. But he had no one to give him the same advice he was giving others. He spent hours on the phone talking to women about their sexual problems and writing them detailed letters as part of his one-on-one advice service. His mail brimmed with pictures of naked women, probably sex workers, who were tantalizing him with offers of more photos at a cost. As Gosnell and Angela's marriage became strained, he strengthened other relationships, including his relationship with the disabled community. He reached out to a famous baseball player who was disabled, a world-renowned hospital, and numerous sex researchers. He spread the word of his silicone dildos to doctors, physical therapists, and leaders in the community and expanded his line of dildos from strap-on dildos to sex toys that customers could hold by the mouth, designed with quadriplegics in mind. Gosnell never forgot that dildos, at their heart, were about pleasure and fun, so he began experimenting with sexier names for his creations like Hardee's, Jupiter, and Joy Boy. The names didn't go over well with some medical professionals. While I am all-for-fun in sex, I am somewhat leery of whimsy in or out of bed, wrote Mary Romano, who worked in the social service department at the Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center. Like many before her, Mary wanted to desexualize one of the most sexual objects in the world. She suggested he call his joy boys artificial penis 1, artificial penis 2, and artificial penis 3. Although she was trying to take the fun out of dildos, Mary at least was acknowledging that disabled people had sex, something many medical providers had never done before. Yet Mary and other medical professionals insisted that sex for disabled people could not be that sexy. Gosnell reluctantly took Mary's advice. He had little choice. If he ignored the medical community he'd have nothing but a basement full of unsold dildos and a wife who was continuing to financially support him. His ads sounded more like a medical brochure for a walker than a sales pitch for a sex toy, describing them as AIDS developed and manufactured by a paraplegic for use by paraplegics and quadriplegics and their mates. Nothing could have sounded less sexy. Angela began helping him with his dildo business, but... She still just viewed it as another one of his castles in the sky and wasn't particularly enthusiastic. Making things more difficult for Gosnell and Angela was the fact that every dildo was handmade, so the business was not easily scalable. But it wasn't just scalability that was worrying Gosnell. He was also facing another obstacle, the federal government. He didn't just have to worry about being arrested for selling dildos. He also had to worry about being charged with pandering under the 1968 Anti-Pandering Act. The law was created to prevent people from receiving unwanted sex catalogs in the mail. But just what was legally acceptable and what wasn't was not clear. One family Gosnell sent his dildo catalog to alerted the post office that he was violating the law which meant he had to stop sending mail to their address or face arrest and a fine or imprisonment of up to five years. There was a federal list of people who didn't want to receive sexually orientated mail, but it was constantly changing. It was hard to know which addresses he could safely send catalogs to. Even within one household, a wife could secretly order Gosnell's dildo catalog, for example, and the husband could find it and alert the police. Gosnell's obstacles mounted. If he mentioned dildos could be used for masturbation, he could be accused of obscenity. If he sent his catalog to a chaste rectory teacher in Poughkeepsie, he could face prison. If he merely called his dildos joy boys, doctors wouldn't recommend them. When he first poured the silicone into a model of his penis, he had no idea the kind of trouble he could be getting into. In spite of these barriers, Gosnell persevered. He distributed his dildos on a small scale throughout the country to disabled customers and those who could afford them loved them. They were like nothing ever seen on the market before. Dildos the color of African American and Hispanic skin. Dildos made of medical-grade materials. Dildos designed with nearly the amount of care and attention given to an artificial limb. Yet, disability publications alone weren't going to keep his business afloat. Either the market wasn't there, or he didn't know how to tap into it. His basement was filled with unsold dildos and vats of silicone of various colors just waiting to be molded into pliable artificial penises. His dream had been realized, but not in the way he had imagined it. The basement of dildos was a tangible reminder that people were rejecting his dick. Or at least a copy of it. He needed to find another market stat. If he couldn't sell his dildos, Scorpio products would collapse, his wife would be annoyed at him, and money would be even tighter than before. Gosnell brainstormed. Who else would buy strap-on penises besides disabled men? He had a connection in Canada to some members of the trans community, and he discovered that a few transgender women were interested in his dildos. But soon he recognized that sales from Canadian transgender women were not enough to sustain the business either. Gosnell was floundering. At one of his lowest points in the late 1970s, he saw an ad in the Village Voice for Eve's Garden, the first feminist sex toy store in the United States. Gosnell dialed the number and spoke with the store's founder, Dell Williams. He didn't think too much about whether feminists would be receptive to a man selling replicas of his penis. He told Dell about his silicone dildos, thinking she'd be thrilled that such a high-quality product existed on the market. But she wasn't impressed. Dildos were highly controversial in the second-wave feminist movement. They were a physical embodiment of the patriarchy. Dell only sold vibrators and was so opposed to patriarchal culture that she didn't even allow men in her store. Sometime in 1977, Gosnell finally won her over. Sort of. She relented and told Gosnell he could come to Eve's garden to make his pitch and she'd possibly consider selling his dildos. As he swung open the doors to the store and wheeled himself through the entrance, Gosnell became the first man to enter the store since Dell's brother years earlier. Dell listened as Gosnell pitched his product. It seemed to go well, at least Gosnell thought so, but he misunderstood Dell's issue with dildos. Because for Dell, no matter how good the material was, it still wouldn't change the fact that they looked exactly like penises, complete with bulging veins and a clearly defined head. In other words, Dell pretty much told Gosnell, Your penis is not what women want. His penis had been rejected. But there was something bigger at stake here. So he stayed and listened to Dell tell him what women wanted out of a dildo. More specifically, what the women who shopped at Eve's Garden wanted. Williams had taken a poll of her customers, and she found they desired a wavy or smooth phallic object that bore only a faint relationship to a penis. They wanted no veins or penis head or testicles. Many wanted the dildo in non-realistic colors, like pastel pink and baby blue. What they wanted was a feminized, non-threatening dick, and Gosnell decided that he was going to give it to them. As Gosnell got to work crafting a feminist dildo, his marriage continued to be strained. He directed his attention to the dildo business instead. If he couldn't have a satisfying sex life, at least the penis replicas he was creating could. In his basement lab, he sculpted a new mold, mixed pink pigment into silicone, poured in the concoction, let it temper, and in a few hours, he was holding the first feminist dildo, the Venus. It looked more like a giant's finger curved in a beckoning motion than a penis. But that was what Dell wanted, and she was satisfied. She listed the beckoning giant's finger in her catalog adjacent to an ad for a book titled The Natural Superiority of Women. The Venus dildo was a hit. It seemed feminists, straight and lesbian alike, were willing to purchase a dildo if it looked cute and non-masculine and Gosnell finally discovered a new lucrative market, all because he took his own penis out of the equation. Now he needed to find more feminist customers to sell the to Venus too. This time, instead of marketing his dildos as saving marriages, he presented his dildos as superior alternatives to it. Without a mate, she can be sexually self-sufficient, the marketing copy in his catalog read. He boasted that his dildos wouldn't get you pregnant. Don't come and get soft afterwards, and don't say, not tonight, I'm tired. With the solid penis device, a woman can learn to know herself, learn how to bring on her orgasm, many orgasms, and enjoy the beautiful feelings in her body, he wrote. This was a radical attitude when only a few years earlier it had been illegal for unmarried women to access contraception and abortion in most states the letters of appreciation poured in. The vibrator and dildo have been a great source of pleasure for me for the past year, one woman wrote to him. With both, I am able to reach orgasm, which I wasn't able to do in 25 years of marriage. Gosnell was spreading more love and bringing in more money than he ever had before, but he was still risking prison by sending out his catalogs. He needed another regular outlet to sell his dildos, and soon he discovered a new womens own sex toy store that opened in San Francisco in 1977. His activist friends in the disability movement told him that Good Vibrations was a place that celebrated all bodies, all sexuality. Gosnell sent a thick envelope in the mail to Good Vibrations, where its store manager, Susie Bright, opened it up. Inside were hand-drawn pencil drawings of all his different devices, along with a carefully penned letter. Susie could tell he was a big nerd, the kind of guy who reads popular mechanics, and she wondered if he was fantasizing these creations, or whether they could possibly be real. The contents of the package must have taken hours to put together. She was intrigued. She wrote back asking him to tell her more about his sex toys. Within weeks, a box of dicks arrived on her doorstep. When she opened it, she gasped. His dildos were so beautiful. They were island colors in artistic, abstract shapes. Sex toys at the time were just so fucking ugly, and here was this creamy, vanilla color, these pale lavenders, these cool pinks, and this mysterious gray. But Susie couldn't stop them in the store without her boss's approval. At first, her boss refused. She wanted to protect the store's ethos that clitoral stimulation, not vaginal penetration, was the key to the female orgasm. But Susie persisted, extolling the virtues of sexual creativity, and finally, her boss gave in. Gosnell was thrilled. He finally had retailers on both coasts. But before he could even think about pleasuring Middle America, he faced a new Less ideological hurdle. Lack of supply. He had trouble keeping up with custom-made orders, such as the customer who sketched a 7-inch long, 3.5-inch wide butt plug and sent it to Gosnell, who enthusiastically created it. The limited supply and high price of his toys ended up working to his advantage, however. The elite sex people in San Francisco wanted dibs on the next one that came in, however much it cost. His dildos were becoming status symbols. Soon, Susie and Gosnell became close. She asked him about his background and was moved when he told her his life story. He also began sharing details of his disappointing sex life. The weight of caring for him had made Angela tired and bitter. So sad to read your letter, Susie replied. Everyone thinks that if you're involved in the sex field, that your love life must be fantastic. Susie became a muse of sorts and they collaborated with each other. They even designed a dildo together that he named after her. His crush on Susie motivated him to craft the perfect dildo for her. The Susie was a simple abstract phallus, not too long, only six inches, a little larger than the average penis. It retailed for $42 at Good Vibration and was available in pink cream and lavender colors. It even made a cameo in a German indie movie that Susie acted in. Gosnell may have wished for more in his own bedroom, but sex had become about more than just, well, sex for him. There was a whole world out there. So he carried on in his Brooklyn basement, crafting dildos and selling them to the handicapped and able-bodied to straights, and gays, and everyone else, to men, women, and non-binary people. Even though the disabled community, the feminists, and the unsatisfied housewives never fully embraced Gosnell, he never gave up, just as he had never given up on his penis ever since that fateful day in 1965. You've been listening to Paperless, an audio magazine by Vespucci.